God, we thank you for a beautiful, cool, wintry desert morning and a weekend of that. And um, it does remind us of your love, just the way that you provide for your creation in something as simple as the rain. And also your mercy, because you make it rain on the just and the unjust. And also your justice, because you distinguish between the just and the unjust. And we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for Mark's gospel and what it teaches us about your son Jesus, and I pray that as we look at the text today, we would see him in the fullness of his deity, and we would be moved to worship him and love him and trust him. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are in Mark chapter 8, finishing up chapter 8 here. And I know we read verses uh, 34 through uh, the end of the chapter last week, but I'd like to do that again because I don't think we really spent enough time on verses 34 through 38. So how about I read that for us? It says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right, so Jesus in verses 34 and 35 is going to talk about the uh, implications of his own suffering in the lives of those who are following him. So remember back to um, verse 31, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then after three days rise again so Jesus is telling his disciples like this is what's gonna happen to me and if you're a follower of mine then if you're gonna come after me verse 34 you're gonna have to deny yourself take up your cross and follow me so the way of Jesus is the way of suffering so what do you think it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus Yeah, but the implication here is based on you doing something, right? Like Jesus could have said, uh, you'll be despised by men. And I, you know, he did say something like that. But the emphasis here is like you doing some kind of action. So what do you think that suffering entails? What's the, like the angle that he's putting on the suffering here? Hi, Nanita. Yeah, giving things up, the things of the world. I'm going to put kind of two uh, meanings behind this, but the suffering is self-inflicted in the sense that, at least the way that he's talking about it here, at least the way that it has to do with... um, it's, it's your choice to 
follow Jesus, and in following him, you are excluding other possible choices, okay? And Jesus is honest and says that that's like taking up the cross. And what does the cross signify? It signifies death. It signifies suffering itself. What about verse 35? What do you guys think verse 35 means? Like I mean, if you care so much so about yourself, then you you will die. Yeah. And the same means about like you, we need to die to ourselves because we like ourselves a lot. Yes. So either we love Jesus or we love ourselves. Like there is not between. Yeah. Either we love Jesus or we love ourselves. And uh, if you remember back to last week, I said something kind of similar to that related to um, related to like verses 32 and 33 that um, there's no middle ground here, right? Like either you're on the side of Jesus or you're not. Um, yeah. I mean, verse 35 isn't just about everybody going through life trying to like save their life. I mean, they're seeking the things that they need, food, maybe money, things that they want. Maybe they want to leave some kind of legacy, some kind of fame, some kind of notoriety. Maybe it's through a legacy to their children or, you know, their name on a building. They'll go down in history like that. I think that it is the natural bent of man to seek, well, really eternal life. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. But if we try and do it our way, we will forfeit everything because we're not capable of achieving this on our own. And then the second part of verse 35, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So if you surrender this one life that you have over to Jesus, you lose it by giving it up to him, then actually you will receive in return eternal life. Man, if only more people knew and understood this, uh, they wouldn't invest themselves in so many useless, meaningless, pointless endeavors. Uh, you know, think about it. The people, well, I, I, let, let's just give a more explicit example. Like who even talks about Lady Gaga anymore? But like 10 years ago, she was like all the rage, right? And in another 10 years, in 20 years, by the time she dies as like an 80-year-old woman, people will be like, who was that again? And within a generation, nobody will even remember her. She might have tons of money and she might have platinum selling records, but totally meaningless. And that's just one of a million examples, you know. History only records the names of very, very, very few individuals. And even they are dead. And what do their lives ultimately matter at this point? Or even worse. Some people like their job a lot and they want to go like yeah. the, what is that, the ladder of success or whatever. But then you die and nobody cares. Yeah, totally. So many things. There's so many things that we, um, we seek to sort of preserve our life, but we can't do it, right? And Jesus invites us to lose our life in him for his sake. 
And in doing so, then, we preserve it forever. So I think Jesus here, in some ways, is reordering our thoughts on life and death. The serpent lied to Adam and Eve and said that life could actually be found outside of God's will. And of course, we know how that went. It's been a disaster. It brought death and all the pain and misery and suffering that humans know. And Jesus is saying to kill the sinful self-will by bringing the heart into submission to God, that is eternal life. Right? So the serpent said self-will will lead to life. And in fact, it produced death. And Jesus is now saying to kill the will of the self and submit it to God is where true life is found. And uh, man, that is a lifelong process to learn that way of living. But it is certainly a good process. All right, and Jesus, I think, is also saying, right, if anyone would come after me, verse 34, then if the Messiah had to suffer to accomplish his purposes, then the followers of that Messiah will like, likewise have to suffer. Um, I despise this view of Christianity that is pitched as, you know, comfortable, easy, um, you know, the, the whole prosperity thing that like God exists to make you just kind of happy. And I despise that because if the Messiah had to suffer, then those who follow him will likewise be required to suffer. And I would say for the followers, this suffering takes two forms. Okay. The first one is the suffering that comes with denying the flesh. Let's be honest, the flesh is, is strong and it has these desires that are contrary to God. And part of our suffering is learning to put that to death. And uh, I think that that's a difficult process. We are in need of killing the desires of evil that are contrary to God. Who was it? Um, John Owen. Owen, thank you. Who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so for those that are enslaved to sin, that are corrupted by the desires of evil, uh, to kill sin feels like death. Uh, there's this wonderful scene. One of my favorite books, I'm sure you know, is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And there's this beautiful scene where the one character that sort of ends up ascending the hills to enter into heaven is this guy who has this serpent on his shoulder. And uh, it's a symbol for lust. And this angel comes to him and says, I can kill it if you let me. And at first he's like, no, 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 it's not that bad. Like, you know, he's probably going to go to sleep now anyway. And so you can just leave him alone. And the angel's like, well, there's no redemption apart from this un unless I kill it. And eventually the guy gets to the point where he's like, all right, this thing is going to kill me anyway. So kill it. But if you kill it, I'll die. And the angel essentially says, yes, you will. And so the angel grabs this lizard and kills it. And the guy falls on the floor and he basically looks like he's dead. And then the, the, the serpent ends up transformed into this stallion. And the man is kind of reborn as this um, kind of edemic uh, image of man. And he hops on this stallion and rides it into heaven. And it probably sounds really cheesy and silly the way I'm retelling it. I admit that. But the idea here is the man thinks that if he kills his sin, that he will die with it. 
And that's the temptation of evil, isn't it? It says, if you put me aside, what will be left of you? Right? If you, if you kill me, you'll die. And Jesus even sort of says that that is true. But it's not an eternal death. This is a transformative death. It's a transformational death. And out of that will come true abundant life, real life, the way that God intended it, where the will of man is under submission to the will of God. That's what we were created for. So that's the first suffering, the denying of the flesh. And I mean, the longer you do that, the better you feel about it. It's sort of like the person who uh, decides that, you know, they're a sluggard and a slob and they're overweight and unhealthy and they want to implement a, an exercise routine in their life. The first six months of that are pretty miserable. But once you get into the habit, the routine of it, you begin to sort of miss it. Your body needs it and you desire it. And it's still an act of discipline, but there's a beautiful freedom and life in it. And that's, that's the way of following Jesus where, you know, putting into place the habits that are obedience are challenging initially. Um, but over time they begin to become uh, uh, something that we long for that really does feel like freedom. So the second kind of suffering is being prepared to accept the contempt of man. Um, you know, Jesus also says, they hate, if they hate me, they'll hate you, right? They, they, they will hate us for perpetuating the teaching of Jesus. They'll hate us for the way that our lives look good. Uh, when theirs are full of evil, they'll hate us for the joy that we experience in spite of the difficult circumstances we go through. And so just as Christ suffered contempt, to follow him, to die to yourself, um, means that we will experience the contempt of the world. And Jesus ends this little section here by verse 38, by saying, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, hang on to that phrase for a minute, but whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So Jesus was not ashamed to die for you. Why would you be ashamed to live for him? Right? If Christ, the son of God, was not ashamed to hang naked on a cross, bearing the contempt of man, and also the poverty of your sin, so that you could be enriched by his grace, then how dare you be ashamed to live for him? Um, any other ways that anybody can think that we might have to suffer by following Christ? I think those big ones are, those two are the big two. Well, if nobody else has any other, any other ideas, then I must have hit all of it and we'll move on. Verse 36. Uh, you do understand that the soul is the most important part of who you are, right? Anthony, I think you and I were kind of talking about this on Wednesday, weren't we? To some degree. Um, your soul is the most essential part of who you are. That's not to say the body is not important but the soul is imperishable, the body is not. 
So your body will die, but on the moment that you die, your consciousness does not cease to exist. And so your soul is far more important, I would say, than your body. And again, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of the body. I'm only trying to elevate the importance of the soul. And our culture does this totally backwards. Our culture basically says all you are is neurons and synapses in a brain, these chemical reactions that produce a, a sense of consciousness, but you're just a body, you're just material, and when you die, that will be the end of you, and so all that matters is your body. And, uh, and this is shifting, like it used to be like, you know, so you need to take care of your body, and you need to make sure that you have a health or health regimen in place, and a doctor, and take these right prescriptions. And now it's shifting where uh, these two sort of contrary, but yet simultaneous, paradoxical views of the self, which the one is, you just need to accept your body the way that it is, right? So now we've got this movement towards like fat consciousness. Is this new thing? You guys heard of this? That, um, that our culture has had like a shameful, awful obsession with being skinny and uh, that there are no health complications to being overweight, which is obviously a statistical lie. And so you just need to embrace your body. That's, a, that's one side. And at the very same time, they're saying that if your mind and your body do not line up, and we can use mind and soul, I think, interchangeably, the metaphysical part of who you are and your body don't line up, then what do you do? You don't change your thinking. You don't change your soul or your mind. You change your body, right? And so you cut it up into pieces to make it... Uh, correspond with what you think about yourself um man how absolutely devastating those things are because what we should be doing is help people care for their souls and uh, and that would serve their bodies much better rather than just manipulate the body to affirm something that's broken in the soul but we should also add that to be human means that you have both a body and a soul. So when you die, <clears throat> the ultimate end stage will be resurrection, right? So I, I don't know exactly what happens when you die now and you have to wait for the resurrection. I think for a period of time, the soul continues without a body, but that's not the that's not God's intention for the human. That's not the final end state of what it means to be human. The body will be raised because the soul and body go together. Um, like we are not purely spiritual beings like angels. We are physical beings in addition to spiritual beings. So, but anyway, Jesus puts the emphasis here on the soul. And uh, unfortunately, we live in a world that doesn't seem to care much about the soul. It makes me think of that catchphrase, YOLO, it's so popular. Yeah. Because that's all about, you know, just living for right now, doing everything you want to do, not worrying about consequences. But as Christians, we're supposed to be having more than do. Yeah. YOLO, you only live once, right? So live it up because you're going to die. And uh, I mean, it's, some people have, have um, supported that with Ecclesiastes, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then the judgment. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point that there's something after that. Um, but I, I think you need to finish reading Ecclesiastes <laughs> before you can make sense of that idea. Because the end of Ecclesiastes says that uh, that the purpose of man's life is to serve God, to honor him. Um, yeah. I was thinking with God, without God, the world is a very confusing place. Because, like you said, it tells you, for example, like, uh, you're good enough, but in reality, we're not good enough. <laughs> um, or like, like love you, love you the way you are, but then cut all the parts, and then transform you. Like, like which one is which? Yeah. Versus, I think that God is God is very consistent, and throughout the time, He remains the same. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. It's a far more powerful statement that there is a God who loves you the way that you are, but He cares about you enough to not leave you the way that you are. Right. Right? Versus the world says, love yourself the way that you are, even though you're a total mess. Um, yeah. What about verse 38? Uh, you know, we, we've been talking about it. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Why don't verses like this get more play in Christian circles? And I would say, tragically, the reason is because the sort of pop image of Jesus can't reconcile statements like this. And notice what Jesus did. I asked you to kind of keep this in your mind. He doesn't say, whoever is ashamed of me. But what does he say? And my words. And my words. Man, uh, we're going to get there, but look down at the transfiguration. At verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 7. What does God the Father say about his Son? This is my beloved Son. What? Listen to him. Listen to him. Man, there's so much emphasis in, in the Bible on the importance of the Word of God, God's words. Do you feel ashamed of God's Word? I'll be honest, like there have been points in my life where I'm like, ooh, man, this theology, I don't know. Like, I think I believe it, but I'm not sure I would want to talk much about it because it's kind of like embarrassing. It's kind of the ones that we should like keep in the closet. That's not a good place to be. Or sometimes we said, oh, I wanted to say that thing from the Bible, but it might open this way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah we're afraid of the way that it might offend people. And... Um, this is this has always been an issue. I mean, it goes all the way back to Jesus. Jesus says it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Like these mainline denominations, <laughs> Methodism, Lutheranism, uh, um, Episcopalianism, even to some degree Anglicanism. You know, about a hundred years ago, they said, uh, people are not so interested in hearing all these things anymore. Let's stop talking about these controversial things and let's just give people more nice kind of biblical platitudes, biblical quote unquote platitudes. And what happened to their churches over a hundred years? Some of these churches have these big, beautiful buildings in these metropolitan areas. And if you go in there on a Sunday, there's like 12 people in there. 
in sanctuaries that could fit five, six hundred people. Um, because there is no spirit of God where the people of God deny the word of God. And so I want you to just see these two things are inseparable. The, the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus, there are many people who say like, well, yeah, I love the ethic that Jesus gave. I love the way that he lived his life and he loved people sort of radically. And, uh, but then when it comes to like his teachings, it's sort of like, well, you know, some of them are good and others are not. And you can't do that with Jesus. He doesn't permit that. And um, so there's many people who claim to love Jesus. They claim to even follow him, but they're ashamed of many of his words. So they scrub them of the, the, the bite, the, the spiciness, and they try to kind of domesticate them. And I want you to just know, you cannot accept Jesus apart from his teachings. Luke 6, 46, I think we looked at this too. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not... Do what I say, right? Do what I tell you. He doesn't say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not follow me? Although that is a part of doing what he tells you. But like the emphasis is on the things that he has spoken. If you love me, you will obey my commands. You will obey my commands, right? And, and what I'm trying to distinguish here is this idea that like, well, I can be a follower of Jesus by being just like a good person, a loving person, a kind person. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. He says that to follow him is to do the words that he has commanded. It's interesting you, you describe the big churches with little, for, you know, very little people in them when they're, I don't see it the opposite, right? It's like if you just give the biblical platitudes with no hard sayings, you usually get a lot of people, like these, make, you know, these mega churches in our town, like not in our town, but in, our, in the valley, you know, where, you know, they're filled with people, but there's no spirit because they're just giving them the people. Yeah, and that's... Usually you have a little bit of people when you're preaching hard truth. Yeah, no, that's also true. What? So just for the sake of the recording so that people can hear, what you know, what about the mega churches that aren't giving like a very robust biblical teaching and they have all these people in there? Well, that's also true. But what will happen to those churches is the same thing that happened to the mainline churches is that over time people will say, we don't really need this. Like I can get this from the self-help book or the TED talk, you know? So like, why do I go to church? I think the mega church phenomenon has been an, a, a, an entertainment competitor. And so it's had that kind of like veneer to it. But yeah, I mean, I, I've probably mentioned this as well. When I went to Willow Creek, they when they built their big new building that cost like a hundred million dollars, it was to seat 7,000 people. And, um, and they said, we're building this building so, um, so uh, robustly, so strongly that it'll last 200 years. And even though like at that point in my life, I could appreciate Willow Creek, I was going, I don't think that in 200 years, people are gonna be doing church like this, you know, or at least that they won't be coming to this church. Like the, the, um, the, the novelty of it will have worn off. So I don't know, I, I could be wrong, but I do agree with you when you don't, when you when you preach the winsome stuff, yeah, people come, at least for a while. That's like the number one checklist. I mean, if you survey Christians, I, I mean, I might run into all the time and they say they're a Christian. I'm like, <coughs> I don't just take that for, you know, I, I think it was a great salt. Well, why are you Christian? And the first thing, it's almost inevitable, I go to church. Yeah. And, and as soon as we take that off of what it means to be a Christian is to go to church, because that's not a, 
yeah. that's not a thing. You're right. part of the church. Yeah. Um, it's good to gather with the church. I felt, you know, like gather yeah. with Christians. Fine, I don't want to say it that way, but yeah. I go to church is not a thing. No, that's it's not. People want to go because they check this box and they're in. Yeah. I go to church. That's what it means to, to go to heaven is going to church. Yeah. That's dangerous. It is dangerous. I was even thinking about the implications of that the other day on Friday when it comes to like a YouTube live stream. Because now we're even one step more removed. What, 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 what to some degree churches are communicating is that if I miss church, I can just tune into the live stream and then I've still accomplished the I'm Christian to, obligation. I'm to put you guys to the test on that. <laughs> but part of the reason is that we offer it is because there are people connect. We're not offering it for those people. Does that make sense? We're offering it for the, I'm on vacation, I'd like to tune in. Um, we're offering it for the, I'm sick at home, we'd like to tune in. And I think that for the sake of those people who understand that participating in the life of the church is not what it, I mean, is is more important than attending a service. Right. But like, let, let me. Yeah, please. Uh, sorry. Like my scenario where I am involved, like I, I go to men's place, I try to go to things, you know, and do things, but this is just one thing that I, you guys were making it available to just a Sunday morning, not this. Um, this is why I, I want to be here for this, but the Sunday morning thing where I can hear your sermon. Yeah. I can do that from home. Yeah. And, and it's very, you know, convenient. I don't feel like I'm missing out on a whole lot. I don't have robust conversations. That I mean, I, I, those things happen here. They happen in yeah. the studies. They happen. It's, it's very tempting to not want to yeah. just do that. Yeah. Since it's an option. Yeah, I agree. There, there is also a good side about it because, like, my husband Ron, yeah, yeah. he's while he's driving, he's listening to during this the Sunday sermon. Yeah, he can tune in around the country. Yeah, and there is because we're recorded part of that, where it's like, okay, I'm trying to be. I get that. That makes sense. That totally, yeah. totally makes sense. He's not here. Um, and actually, like another 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 one is uh, I mentioned this guy Tim Hosell. Tim Hosell lives in the mountains in California, like an hour and a half drive from the nearest church. And he's got no, like he's got community up there. There's other believers that live up there with him, but there's not like a church. But why, why doesn't he listen to another sermon? Why is that like, in other words, we're not doing anything different than he could pick any, any sermon, any time and listen to it at any point. A recorded yeah. sermon from the sixties of, you know, no, it's true. That's anybody. that's true. But I mean, it, it's the same argument either. Look, either way, like why not? You know, I mean, uh, if he would do that, he might as well do this. I, I, I'm just saying, like I go back and forth on this, but I, I do think that it'll be interesting to see in the long term whether the shift in COVID to the live stream, you know, tool by churches ends up hurting the church in just one more way. Um, and I think we're already seeing some of that. I mean, I was talking with one of the guys from COC before before COVID, their attendance and like attendance, right? Their church attendance was like 850. It's still not over 550. So all these people, but their live stream is up, you know, 100%, something like that. Those who belong to him, he will not let go. Yeah. And those who are in him will have the, the thirst to be part of a living body. Yeah. That, that's my point though but but the Sunday thing for me I have a thirst I would do Bible studies every single day of the week if I could 
but coming on Sunday to, to think when I can just get the exact same experience from my couch and like I, I see these people weekly, you know, like the people I'm going to talk to. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just, yeah. It's, it's, well, I don't. I don't experience it as the exact same. No, I, I actually. I for me, like when I'm not here, if I can tune in live, I'll do that. But I have zero interest in watching the service later. Um, and the reason is because I've missed the experience. I've missed, and and like I'm already missing it because I'm not in the room with these people. I'm not interacting with them. I get it. But like I'm one more removed where I could watch it later. Um, so that's just my again my personal opinion right. on that. Let's 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 look at it as a, you know, the Bible. It's a Bible thing that you know we said that to preach the word to in the entire world and the technology is just catching up right now. Yeah. So to me, it's it's like that. Like oh my gosh, and nobody nobody can say now that I didn't hear the word from God. I mean, for sure, because of the technology, everybody is like true. hearing it, but. Just ignore it. It's true. It's true. So the technology just catching up that what the Bible is saying, but we cannot really understand or explain it properly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the the thing that um, we definitely want to be careful of is uh, just understanding the importance of belonging to the people of God where we are submitted to the teachings of God and you really can't do that unless you have a community. Like you cannot practice what the New Testament teaches, the love one another's, the serve one another's, the show hospitality, unless you belong to a church. You can't do that through a screen. Um, so that is an essential part of what it means to be a believer. And I, I'm just acknowledging the danger of giving people the impression that they can do those things by turn tuning into you know a video feed that's not how this works but um and jesus says that this is a an adulterous and sinful generation he says this adulterous and sinful generation in verse 38 i don't think that that is unique uh, I don't think that Jesus is saying this is a particularly sinful and adulterous generation um, because if you read the Old Testament, Israel is basically called that in every generation. And I think if Jesus were here today, he would basically say the same thing. And we saw it pre-Israel with the generation of the flood, right? They were so wicked and adulterous, God ended up wiping them off the face of the earth. We do see it now in Romans 1. The man knows the truth, but he suppresses it. Um, and so I would say just that all the generations that follow Adam, all of those who are the progeny of Adam, which is every person who's ever lived, belong to a sinful and, and adulterous generation. So how do we find courage to come after Christ? To deny ourselves, take up a, take up our cross, follow him, not be ashamed of his words or ashamed of him. What do you think? It's hard, but we have to struggle it every single day. Because, you know, we still have living in our flesh, but we have the spirit to say, don't listen to the flesh, just stay in the word. Yeah. 
But I think, I don't know, it, most of the Christian probably that's the struggle. That's our struggle, you know, to, to, to be like, get out, I mean, get rid of the flesh. Yeah, totally. And in the we have sort of a paradox in this because Jesus says it's it's taking up your cross, but then he also says my burden is easy, and um, and so like both of those things are true. Um, yeah, but it is it is it's a struggle. Because when I, I no I, I personally I said when I when I don't pray hard in during the first thing in the morning my day kind of like a miss up. Sure. So that's, that's like, okay, I will stay. <laughs> yeah. Because like, if you have a devotion in the early in the morning, your day will like follow. But if you kind of like just hurry, 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 and then you forget if the things you wanna first God, then the days will like, it's a mess. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a proven, you know, it's a proven thing. And it's a spiritual proven thing. Yeah. I, I don't remember the reference, but there's a song that I used to sing that we used to sing when I was a kid that went, Oh Lord in the morning to you uh, oh Lord in the morning, I direct my praise unto you. And I'm I'm almost confident that that's a psalm, but I can't think of it off the top of my head, and I'm sure that that's a song lyrical version of it. But the point being that, you know, to set our mind on God as we begin the day is a powerful thing. I think my sort of main solution to this is Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah. Um, some, for some crazy reason, my wife does not like ice cream. <laughs> but, like, she could try and dissuade me from liking ice cream all day long. But I have tasted and seen that it is good, right? <laughs> like, I like ice cream. And I can flip it around. She likes pickles. And... You know, I could try and talk her out of liking pickles, well, for 15 years of marriage, and it hasn't happened yet because in her mind she's tasted and seen that it's good, right? And so I think for the believer, the more that we're in God's Word, the more we put the practice, the teachings of Jesus, the more that we are in community with believers, the more that we're submitted to the work of the Spirit in our lives, the more we taste and see that God is good. Like, I could never be ashamed of Christ and His Word at this point, because I've I've tasted, and I've seen like, it's like good. Hymn that says, "All I've proved Him." Over yes. Over. Yeah. Jesus. Yes, absolutely. That's a good one. And that goes with the verse oh, four. That would come up too. <laughs> yeah. Just more. more. Totally. Um. Yeah, and man, what an incredible thing! Think about the implication of this verse 38 the inverse implication right Jesus says if you're ashamed of me then on the day that I return in glory I will be ashamed of you man what an incredible thing to stand beside Christ before God the Father and have Jesus say he's with me right like he belongs to me I acknowledge his faithfulness to me. Um, there is no greater honor. There will be no greater honor than that. When I was in Kenya, the guy that I went with, Michael, 
to start each conference would get up and sort of butter me up, you know, this is what you do so that people are interested in listening to you, right? And um, I mean, in some ways, it's kind of like that. Like, it'll be an incredible thing for Jesus to speak well of us. Um, and of course, that made me uncomfortable um, because it's just an uncomfortable thing. But I think it'll maybe make us uncomfortable as well. Because we'll be like, oh, Jesus, you're the one who deserves all of this praise. Like, why are you, why are you acknowledging me? I should be acknowledging you, right? All right, let's move into chapter 9. Unless anybody has any other thoughts on that. All right. And Jesus said to them, truly, or truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, let's just stop there for a minute because, or a few minutes, um, because somehow more than a few people have been tripped up by this verse, and it's so obvious, it's it's almost stupid. Um, Mark puts it here as sort of the thesis of where he's going in his story. Again, Mark didn't put chapters in here, but this verse is going to let us know what's going to follow immediately after with the transfiguration. Uh, and this is what it means to see, this is what Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is some of you standing here are going to see the son of God like you will see him on the last day and you won't die until you see that. And that is fulfilled within the week in verses two through seven or two through eight. Okay. So when you bring together, uh, well, let me just give you the two kind of major like ways in which, um, no, hold on. Let me, let me hold off for one minute before I go there. Uh, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay. Jesus, the kingdom of God has already begun to come because Jesus began his ministry back in Mark chapter one, verse 15. You remember the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is the herald to not only proclaim it, but usher it in through his own life and action. And now the kingdom of God comes in power because the identity of the king is revealed in fullness, at least to some. We see that in verses 2 through 8. And so the, the point of verse 1 is not that some among the disciples will live forever. That's actually what the Mormons believe. They believe that because Jesus said this, the uh, Apostle John, or is it the Apostle John? I think it is the Apostle John, is still alive on earth somewhere. And he's like living and, you know, one day he's going to be like, hey guys, by the way, I'm John. That's weird. But then you also have this other kind of, I guess, quote unquote, Christian false reading of this text, which is preterism. So a full preterist is somebody who believes that the second coming of Jesus has already happened. And I think in part they believe that because of a misreading of this verse. And there's a couple other verses similar to it. Uh, John chapter 21, verses 20 to 23. Flip there real quick. And and I, again, the Mormons use this one. And it's, it's absurd because it's, John tells us right in the verses what he means by what he says here. 
Somebody willing to read John 21, 20 to 23? Then Peter turned about and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which had also leaned on his breast at supper, and had said, Lord, which is he that betrayed thee? When Peter therefore saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Jesus said unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is it to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this word abroad among the brethren, that this disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not to him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is it to thee? Like John specifically interprets the, the meaning of what Jesus says to tell us that Jesus was not saying John would live forever, but simply telling Peter to mind his own business, <laughs> right? So I, I just don't understand why this is complicated for some people. Um, and maybe I'm making it more complicated by giving him attention. Uh, the preterists would believe that John lived until 87. Yeah, I'm, I'm not suggesting the preterists hold that view, sorry. But that they, they, they use this verse to say, see, Jesus must have come back. The fullness of the kingdom must have been realized because these men have died. And, and he said it would happen in their lifetime. And what I'm saying is what all Jesus has in mind here is the transfiguration. And it's fulfilled there. Um, and that's why Mark puts it here. And that's why it's, it follows. I hate that the ESV puts, if, you're, if you have the ESV, then does anybody else have a heading between verses 1 and 2 in their Bible? Man, sometimes you just need to ignore those. Like, I, I've got to the point in reading my Bible, I don't read them anymore because they're just not helpful. Um, and they, they, what they do is they force you to, to read what follows with that particular idea in mind. And I don't think it's always accurate. But I think verses 1 and 2 belong side by side. So after six days, Jesus, this is picking up in verse 2, um, after And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All right, so seeing the transfiguration of Jesus is, is seeing the fullness of the kingdom of God. So why a mountain and why six days? Exodus 24, 15 through 18. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. 
The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, I don't know how you could not draw like a direct connection there between those two passages. I love um, looking at those things, the similarities between Old Covenant and this Covenant. That's one I never saw, and I'm, and I'm trying to think it through as you're saying it, it, because wouldn't it be that Jesus would be on the mount for six days then? The peril, like, or even some kind of... Yeah, but the Bible plays loose and fast with, with these agree, kinds yeah. of, of connections. I would even say Jesus does that immediately after in verses 9 through 13. Because here's Elijah who literally shows up on the mountain, but I think in 9 through 13, Jesus is referring to John the Baptist. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of does twist your mind a little bit. It's like, well, that's not how I would have made the correlation. Um, But he goes up on a mountain to give the new lawgiver. Yeah, yeah. right. In the Sermon on the Mount, yeah. I agree with that 100% as well. Um, well, even here, he's giving us his lawgiver in a sense because he's telling his disciples, listen to him. He's true. Yeah, that's good. And Moses was the lawgiver. Love it. I didn't see that. But yeah, absolutely. That's good. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so there's definitely some some parallels there for sure. Luke, Luke says eight days, which is why it's kind of... Yeah, and there's just a difference in in ways that you count. Um, you know, did it happen on the eighth day? Was it in the morning? Like, yeah. So the resurrection problems. Right. Or the Passover problems. Yep, yep, totally. Uh, so here's what's kind of interesting is in Exodus, you have Moses and Joshua, actually. if you, I didn't read these verses to you, but if you go the verses a little bit before in Exodus 24, Moses goes up. And Joshua goes up with him, right? Uh, Now you have Moses and Elijah on the mountain. Um, And uh, I would say it's probably Moses for the law, right? Moses is the lawgiver and Jesus is the lawgiver. Why Elijah? Prophets. Yeah, to deal with the prophets. I think there's actually a couple of reasons. But yeah, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the prophets were uh, prophesying about, anticipating. Um, But I I would say also Elijah had to do with the faithful of Israel, right? That like particularly Elijah was frustrated that like, look, there's nobody left but me. And, And God's response to that was, no, 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 I have faithful people. And um, ultimately, who is the faithful one of Israel? It's Jesus. Then you also have Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, that says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So right there in Malachi, verses 4 through 5, you have both of those guys brought together, Moses and Elijah. So I think this is a fulfillment of that. And I think you have sort of a double meaning here with Elijah, because I think in many ways, John the Baptist is interpreted as 
Elijah. But then literally, Elijah shows up here. So um, it's kind of a complex web. Uh, you have this um, white, right? So Jesus is transfigured and uh, man, that's kind of an interesting word. I should have spent some time looking at that in the Greek but now that I'm standing up here. Um, Isn't that the metamorphosis? Is it morphu, that one? Metamorphu? If, I'm guessing it is because morphu is the Greek word for like transform and meta would be this prefix. So uh, the point is nothing, nothing really changes about Jesus. He's just revealed to be God. Um, now, when Peter said, what is it, morphu yeah, or metamorphu? Yeah. When Peter said, you are the son of the living God, do you think he had this in mind? I don't think he had a clue. No. Certainly not this. Okay. Um, all right. So white, you have here that uh, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I was amazed in Africa how white their clothes were. Like when they wore white, it was like whiter than white clothes. Like my wife is good at laundry and she can bleach my shirts, but they weren't that white. Um, and uh, you just think about like the, the, the process they must go through to get that done. But Mark is very explicit here. This is not like laundry white. You know, this is like a whole nother level of white. And uh, I think this is a subtle indication when he says, like, no one on earth has, you know, bleached their clothes white. Um, he's, he's giving, this is language to help us understand. This is clearly divine. Um, this is not a human work. Jesus didn't, like, run behind a curtain and throw some white clothes on and come out and be like, hey, guys. Uh, more importantly, though, this is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 9. Um, somebody... Willing to read that for us? You got it? As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head was the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. So the Ancient of Days is clothed in these white clothes. And then Revelation chapter 1 describes Jesus... It doesn't describe his clothes as being white, but the hairs of his head are white, like wool, like snow. So you have this kind of like three-part picture of the Ancient of Days and Christ and the whiteness. Um, and then obviously Revelation 2, Revelation also gives us this view of the people of God arrayed in fine white linen. I, I believe that's chapter 19. Um, maybe we should stop there. Are you going to bring out the Second Peter verse um, just to back up what you said about verse 1 until they see the kingdom of God come in power and then that, that means the transfiguration because people have a hard time saying did the kingdom of God come you know at that time because there's a lot of views it's like it came at Pentecost it came at his resurrection it came at so and so but Second Peter says this, that the He's the one that was there, and he says the same language. I mean, he references this event. 
It says, um, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, and he take her life. That could be his baptism, right? Or it could be this, this scene. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to... Well, it says the next week, and we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Yeah, so that's... So we're referencing that. So yeah. the kingdom of God came. People have just have this idea, though, that the kingdom of God comes in the millennial kingdom. Or, right. And the kingdom of God started in Jesus' day. Yeah. And and the, this is part, for, for me in my mind, this is part of the, like, already not yet. The, like, I, I just don't have a problem saying, like, the kingdom of God has come. Yeah. And it's changing lives and people are in it like i'm living in it right and yeah the fullness is not yet here but like the ship has sailed man and it's not going back and so every day that passes we come closer and closer there will be a final day the return of the king right and he will be crowned and And the kingdom will change in 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 the physical realm yeah it's still the start was then it wasn't then it's just a change Yeah. yeah totally and uh, and yeah, we, we wait for the final consummation of that, but it's it's begun. So, yeah, I, I guess some people do have like they, they need it more kind of like the kingdom is delayed. A lot of people have the kingdom being delayed. Christ wanted to set up his kingdom. They would receive it. It's being postponed. Right. And yeah. We're, we're saying, no, the kingdom has got started. It, yeah. 2000 years ago, like a mustard seed has been growing, capturing people. Absolutely. And I think if you understand like the way that the New Testament works as opposed to the Old Testament, the Old Testament, if it was a kingdom, it was literally a kingdom. Right. But the way the, old, the New Testament works is this is a spiritual reality. And it has a, again, a final eschatological reality to it. But I think uh, application wise, people can, they, they rest well. You know, struggling to say, well, in the final state, I'll be in that kingdom and I'll, I'll take care of it. But no, you're submitted to the kingdom now. Yeah. And you need to be subject and not be a treasonous traitor yes. right now. Amen. Lord, he's your king. We're in his kingdom now. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well said. Well, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are king and we thank you that you did bring your kingdom. And of course, we, as we think about Christmas and Advent, we look forward to the, the second coming where you will complete this process of bringing your kingdom. Um, But I pray, like Rick was saying, that we would live submitted to our king here and now. And we thank you for the testimony of Mark and Peter and the testimony of your word that Jesus is the Ancient of Days, that he is the one greater than Moses and Elijah, that he is the Son of God in power. And... um, Man, Lord, we we do pray for your kingdom to come even more. We pray for your will to be done. And we pray that in our lives and in our church, in our community here in Maricopa. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would live this life faithfully so that you would not be ashamed of us on the day where we stand in judgment. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.